Welcome to Conversations with Dr. Jennifer, a collection of interviews on the topics of relationships, sexuality, spirituality, and more, all featuring Dr. Finlayson Fife. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I've been looking forward to this podcast for quite a while. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You are joining us from Chicago. Is that where you live? That's where I live. I happen to be in Florida at present, but but that yes. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've asked Dr. Finlay. Finlayson Fife to talk a little bit about belief, uh, sorry, belonging and boundaries in, in LDS culture. And that will be the, the main part of this podcast. I've asked her to also share her personal story um, that I think might be helpful to younger Latter-day Saints. You're established in your career. You've owned your own practice. You have a PhD and a master's degree, and you've served a mission. It might just be helpful for younger Latter-day Saints, women and men that are wondering how to make their way forward to hear your Mm. story and the principles and the perspectives. Not that everybody needs, life needs to turn exactly out like you, but I think Mm. it might be helpful. Um, You got a master's degree in um, counseling psychology from Boston College in 1995, a Mm. PhD in counseling psychology from Boston College in 2002. And listeners, I've just been aware of Dr. Finlayson Fife, I've sort of, do we call that a fanboy? I've been a fanboy of you and your work. And um, we will link That's to her great. website in uh, the show notes. And she works in multiple areas that we won't get to in this podcast. So please check out her website for the different things that she's doing. And her work in our faith community is so needed. So is that okay for an introduction? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So that's a wonderful introduction. And uh, I'm happy to talk about my early experience guide me slightly like how how where do you want me to start (laughs) go back to maybe college um yeah i mean did you just kind of talk about did you have a clear path forward in college what you wanted to do academically and professionally and were there voices in your life that said don't do that or women shouldn't Mm -hmm. be doing that in lds culture and i definitely had that walk us through that sure so i you know grew up just as a very young person, as a social scientist, I didn't know that it was different than other people, but I was always thinking about, you know, why people were happy or not happy. And particularly, I was drawn to the question of marriage. And I think perhaps because I grew up learning about the importance of marriage, and it certainly appealed to me, but I had fear that as a woman, that marriage was going to mean just folding into a man's life, because that's very much what I was being taught at the time. It was my parents' pattern. And I was very nervous about that because I wanted to be married, but I didn't want to lose myself in the service of a man's life, which is how I was learning was what I was my divine calling. And then this sort of overlapped with... um the call for women to, I think it was President Benson who talked about women should come back from the workplace and should be home. And and while I cherish the fact that my mom was home because she was a very good mother, she was very invested and having her there was very important to me. And I actually valued the message um, of the work that women traditionally do um, and how much it matters. But 
I was afraid of this idea that I was going to just lose my identity once I got married. And because that scared me enough for whatever reason, I mean, I had friends who seemed unconcerned, but I, I just really didn't want to lose myself in a man's world. And so I cared very much about these things and thought about them a lot. But I also believed, you know, because I'd been taught this idea that that a faithful woman, like once she meets the right guy, she'll sacrifice any career aspirations and do the right thing and get married and have children. So, yeah, so I was, I, you know, I wanted to be good. I wanted to do the right thing. And I I knew that my faith had meant a lot to me and there were many truths being taught to me, but this was one that I felt real ambivalence about, which made me sometimes feel like there was something wrong with me. But, um, and so I started, when I started BYU, I started by studying interior design. That's also another love of mine. And I felt more like what a good woman does, actually. So I didn't pursue psychology, even though that was my love my biggest love, because I was trying to kind of do what would be considered acceptable. I loved the two years that I studied it, but then I decided to go on a mission because I also, for me, my mother served a mission, so I had a bit of a of a role model in her, but also I wanted a time to kind of sort out my own beliefs and my own thinking and to really give all of my energy to that question. What I think I was really doing, although I didn't have language for it then, is I wanted to get my own testimony. Like I wanted my own, I guess I did have language for that, but I was trying to disentangle my mind from other people's minds. I was trying to sort out what do I think? Who am I? What do I believe is right? Who is God? And so my mission was very much that pursuit for me. And what the effect the effect of that was, is that <clears throat> when I came back, I just had more confidence in myself. Um, I was a very obedient missionary, to use that language, because I, I was going and I wasn't going to do anything other than what I said I was going to do. But I was very, but how to say it, I wasn't in the mindset that if I obey, I will be blessed. I was doing the rules because it was the right thing to do, but I was thinking more, um, how do I explain this? I was thinking much more autonomously. Like I was really thinking about what do I think about this idea? What do I think about um, this belief? And so I was spending a lot of time sorting out my own mind um, during that time. So the effect of it was that when I came back, I also had many experiences working with women in domestic violence situations and just seeing the pervasive need that people had for good help. So when I came back, I decided that I was going to get a PhD. I mean, I, I wasn't confident I was going to be capable of it, nor that um, I, something wouldn't happen in the meantime that would make that not possible, but I was going to walk that path. And I knew that was going against, you know, the social rules. It wasn't really in my family. My family valued me getting married and would have thought that was perfectly fine for me to not even finish a degree. But on the other hand, they weren't controlling or dogmatic either. So it was completely fine with them when I said, I want to get a PhD. <laughs> so, um, so I, um, came back, changed to, psychology 
And women's studies was a minor that had just started at BYU that semester. So I also signed up for a women's studies minor and just put my head down and (laughs) walked that path and kind of avoided dating and men (laughs) because I didn't want the right person to come along, to be honest. And (laughs) so, so I didn't meet my husband until I was until I was actually in my master's program. Well, I shouldn't say I didn't. I met him right when I went to Boston, but we didn't start doing things together until I was beginning to apply for PhD programs. And so he's also not the kind of person that would have ever said I should do otherwise. So all that mattered for me a lot. That's exactly what I thought you'd talk about and hoped you'd talk about. And I haven't heard any of that story. And um, talk about, it sounds like you came back and said, PhD. It wasn't master's. And yeah. Was PhD um, a means to what you knew you wanted to do with the PhD? Yeah. Talk a yes, little bit I about so. that and talk about sure. navigating voices that said you shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff. Good. So I think that my father had a PhD. I don't actually, I think it was in some ways a misunderstanding on my part that I must have a PhD to be a clinician. So on some level, I think I just believed I had to go the full nine yards to be able to have a private practice. So part of it was a misunderstanding, which it became clear once I was, I don't know, at some point it became clear. Um, But I knew that I wanted to not just be a clinician, like I wanted to be able to think and write about these things. And so it felt like it would give me the immersion that my soul wanted to sort out important questions about human beings and and um what helps people change so i think i knew i was kind of committing to a a more immersive longer term thing not just a practitioner so um so that was why i thought this was the direction i'd go and then navigating the voices i I think what happened and largely happened on my mission for me was I got more confidence in my own mind. And while I had really, and partly what I did on my mission was take very seriously what other people told me. (laughs) That is like, I'm going to give this a fair shake. I'm not going to be flippant about what other people are telling me is true and right. But I'm also going to test it against my own thinking. And I got permission within myself and in my relationship with God to to honor my own honest thoughts. Because I remember being in the MTC and there was so much pressure around conformity of thought and conformity of belief. And so I remember kind of being in a bit of a crisis, sitting in a testimony meeting and praying to God and saying, is this what you want from me? Like to just sacrifice my own thinking, to just like flatten myself and just conform. And, you know, I feel like my mission was that answer for me, which is no, you know, I want you to live truthfully and honestly and to be a pursuer and seeker of truth. And I definitely, you know, I I would say I've had the number of spiritual experiences I've had where I feel a kind of connection with the divine, I would say is like on one hand, (laughs) I don't have like, oh, you know, you know, I have a cousin who has, you know, wallpaper gets, she gets witnesses on wallpaper. Okay. So there's some people who have far more than I do, but this is, you know, for me was this really clear message that being true to 
my most honest self is the path and and is the path to wisdom. So it gave me more permission to not, I certainly um, knew I would continue to take seriously other people's thinking and to consider it honestly, but I was definitely giving myself more permission to claim who I was, what I believed and what my path would be. So I knew I was going to be walking an invalidated path and it wasn't coming from my own family, but it certainly came from men I dated at BYU. It came from other you know, families that had been in my ward growing up telling me I was not doing the right thing. And, you know, I never liked that. And these were people that I respected, right? So I didn't, I didn't like it, but I didn't, I knew I had to live in the consequences of my choices and I was prepared to do that. Um, I love the vocabulary and uh, walking in an invalidated path. I think that's mm-hmm. one of your gifts is you have this vocabulary mm-hmm. as part of your story to you mm. have wonderful phrases to communicate um, mm. your journey and to help us understand how to support others. Did you know you wanted to go into your own practice when you started this um, multi-year I, road of academic? Um, did you know? I think could, I, I think I did. I think that's part of my misconception about master's versus PhD. I thought that I to have my own practice, I had to be that level of trained. Uh, rather than work in a clinic. And part of the reason I wanted my own practice is because I wanted the flexibility because I did want to be an at-home parent. I wanted to um, not be bound to somebody else's schedule. So I saw that as a way, you know, to have an office in my home, you know, to off the, you know, connected to my home anyway, so that I could see people in a way that would work with raising children, which is what I did. I didn't do it until my kids were a little bit older, but that's exactly what we did. We, we built an office off the side of our house that um, allowed me to not have to be on insurance panels and pay rent. And so it just gave me optimal flexibility with raising kids. Does this surprise you how your career has turned out? If your younger self, and as you transition from interior design pre-mission to post-mission psychology, would your younger self be surprised that things have worked out? And it's sort of you talking to younger people that may have a lot of anxiety about how their life is going to turn out. Yes. I mean, I, so I would say yes and no. And I would say there's a part of me that would have been absolutely blown away and still kind of is, to be honest. Like there's moments where I'm like, wait, I don't understand why, you know, why this has gone so well, because, um, I think it's also because it was just the way that I always thought and was always trying to figure things out. So I didn't understand until I started speaking that this was something people needed. So there's a part of me that's definitely surprised and would have been surprised. There is another part of me, I think that I think because I could feel that people often wanted what I was saying, that they resonated with it, they needed it. So there was a part of me that felt this sense that there was something there for me to do. And it wasn't much clearer than that. It's just I did feel a pull in a way. So it's it's not like, oh, you know, God was laying down a path. There was none of that. It wasn't like there was no signs. It was just my heart longed to do it. And I could feel that there it resonated and that it was being received and that was before I ever even opened my practice. 
Um, you've kind of done this already. Talk to younger people in their 20s, maybe college-age people, particularly women, but I think men too. Um, I wish I had somebody like your voice in my life in college because the things you teach would help me as a man be a better mm. man and better um, be more thoughtful about my career. So mm. that's kind of a general question, but just talk yeah. to, you know, I know you do this a lot. Talk to women yeah. and men in their 20s. Well, what I would say is that, okay, here's some of my thoughts. One is that it's a very exciting time to be in your 20s and a very insecure time because, you know, there's so much possibility. But then I think there's an anxiety about, is there the right path? What is the right path? What is the best path? So it's got all the optimism of multiple possibilities, but then the same anxiety. And I think just one thought that I would give is that there are many, many paths to walk and many ways you can be happy and be anxiously engaged in a good cause. Sometimes I think because we're afraid of the uncertainty, we get too tied up in the idea that there is a path for me or that God knows the plan for me and I've got to figure out what it is. And in my experience, I don't think that's a helpful way to think. I think the anxiously engaged in a good cause is a much better one because the way I've sorted out my path is I would, you know, I'd started design and I I liked it. And, it, you know, it, there was a lot of things about it that I loved, but it also, as I was doing, it was making it clear to me that it wasn't the path I, that I wanted, that I wanted something more. But I don't know that I could have had the clarity to make the commitment of this longer term educational goal for me without starting down another path first, right? So a lot of times we think of it as, oh, we have to figure, get it right, not invest money in the wrong place. But if we're a little more compassionate towards ourselves and say, like, this is a process of sorting out who I am and what I desire, that that's all valuable and it's all good because even doing quote unquote the wrong thing, which I'm not sure is really the right way to say it, but not ultimately the path you choose, informs, it teaches you, it broadens your perspective, and it gives you more clarity about the person that you want to become. So I would be kind to myself around that process because there's no other way to do it than to roll up your sleeves and try things and learn from them. And if we're too perfectionistic, we we're too, we make it very difficult to just allow it to be a reflexive self-awareness um, process. The other thing I would say is that the people that are happiest in their lives have found a meaningful way to contribute to society. And this can be in a macro level, right? Or this can be in a more micro level that they're contributing by taking care of an aging parent, right? So it's there's many ways to make a difference. The people that are happiest have found a problem that matters to them to solve. And so they're going and learning the skills that matter around that particular problem. So, you know, it's like, okay, for example, I knew why marriages mattered to me. That's all that I understood is that, that for some reason... How to help people be more happily married was just a question or a problem that mattered to me because I'd see these people at church 
for all our professing of how great marriage is, they would have like their 11 kids between them. They would be on either end of the view and they didn't seem very happy to me. Okay. And so I'm like, wait, is that what it really is? Is these are just like, you know, people that are raising children, but they aren't, they don't actually like each other very much. So it was a problem I cared about. Well, as I started to move towards that, you know, it, it, made me start thinking more about women and women in marriage, right? And so I started pursuing more around that idea. And then I started thinking about the issues around sexuality. So th these were like, you know, it was because I'd get involved in something that it would lead me to the next question. And sometimes it was coming from the outside. Like I was asked to teach a human sexuality class, right? Or there were things that would come into play that would make me, you know, um, pull me in a direction and you, I could feel like I love this and I don't like this. So that is a reflexive creative process and to just embrace it, to let it inform you, but also you develop yourself as well. Like I became good at things I didn't think I was good at just because, you know, I was subjected to an expectation and I had to keep you know, writing was something I hated, hated in high school. And it's like, I couldn't have imagined a million years that I would write a dissertation or write, work on a book. But it was just because I cared about this that I just kept doing it and got better and better at it. And so my point is there's native gifts we have that we find in this way, but then there's also capacities we develop because there's a problem we care enough about to subject ourselves to that process. It's a really helpful segment. I think one of the themes I'm feeling from your life experience is ownership. I, I, I learned who I am. A lot of that came on your mission and I, I kind of muted some of the voices about the cultural expectations for me in Latter-day Saint community, more so for a woman than a man. And I charted my own path as a position of strength, not out of fear based on the culture mm -hmm. expectations, but as it seems like it's been very intentional and at its position of strength and very mm -hmm. thoughtful. And I think that's, and it's not, and those principles apply to all of us. So that's what I love about yeah. your personal story is that not, and some people may choose to be an interior designer. Absolutely. I don't, I don't think you're saying don't be an interior designer, no. No. but own that from a, a position of strength that that's your best path forward and your best self and your exactly. best way to contribute. Introduce your practice to us because we're going to talk about. Um, belonging and boundaries, but I want people mm -hmm. to understand sort of the different segments. I'm a marketing guy, so I think of segments or areas. Sure. So sure. If, if we don't get yeah. to something, people are aware this is an area of expertise and they would go to your website or potentially enroll in your online courses yeah. or some of your yeah. work. Well, the way I started out was just doing private practice and doing mental health counseling mostly. And, um, but because I had written my dissertation on LDS women and sexual agency, right. Um, I was looking at who were the women in that had grown up in the church who were thriving in their sexual relationship in marriage and who were the women that were not. So this was uh, my dissertation topic. And at the time there was so much need for this because no one was talking about it or practically no one. And so my sister invited me to come to New York City and to speak to some friends on my dissertation research. So we kind of opened it up. She was in a small studio in Chicago. We said like, or I'm sorry, in New York, we said like 20 bucks at the door, something like that. And it was packed. like people were sitting on the counters. I mean, literally people were right at my feet. Like if I took a step to the right, I'd fall on top of them. And so it was like, I was like, okay, there's clearly a demand here. <laughs> 
And so then somebody from that group invited me to come to DC. I presented there and then someone there said, you should really do this online. And I'm like, what's that? What does that mean? (laughs) This was very, very new at the time. So um, I did, I started teaching it online. This was like maybe 2010 or 2011. And, you know, and then it just evolved from there. I did a relationship course, a sexuality course, and then eventually a women's sexuality course, a men's sexuality course, um, and a how to talk to your kids about sex course, all with a Latter-day Saint um, audience in mind. Of course, there's non-LDS people that take the courses because these are just true principles, but I'm often speaking from the lens of of LDS belief and culture. So, um so I did the online courses, um, have done them. And um, so that's been a big part of my practice. And then I moved a little more into teaching in live settings, coming and doing seminars, retreats, which I continue to do. And then I also, and, and doing a lot of podcasting throughout, that was part of it. But then more recently, I started something called, it's a it's a subscription podcast called Room for Two, where, because there was just so much demand on my practice and I couldn't possibly see all the people that were trying to get in front of me, that this was an attempt at a solution, which is if I'm working with couples anonymously and people can listen in and hear their stories, then they can hear the feedback that I give to them. And this has proved to be very, very helpful for people. We get feedback all the time about it, like that they are able to hear a story of another couple, which is first normalizing because they're like, oh, you know, I guess we're not so different. We're not uniquely broken. We're just human. And then they also get to hear what my input is on that particular issue. So a lot of people have written us and said, it's actually helped us get unstuck on something we've been stuck on for years um, because they could hear it through another person's story. It's also helpful because sometimes people sitting in front of me feel you know, they're guarded or they feel defensive. And when it's somebody else, they're like, oh, I know what he's doing. Like, okay, (laughs) they can see themselves in it and their guard is down a little bit and it makes it easier to see their own participation in a unloving pattern. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell, how do people get to these courses? So if you go on my website, they're just, you'll see up there online courses, live events, podcasts. So you can just go on the website right at the header. It'll show you and you can learn more about the courses, what each one covers, uh, the podcasts and so on. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so listeners, I, um, I'm i not familiar with all of your content, but I just, as I, I'm on social media and I see comments on your Instagram, I just sense mm-hmm. this content in multiple circles I mean, you're not mm. sort of one dimensional. There's a lot mm. of stuff you're covering and I just um, mm-hmm. appreciate it so much. And it's so needed. Mm. There's a real yeah. vacuum for this type of content as evidenced by that very first New York City. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, and I don't think that's changed since 2010 or whenever that was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, listeners, this was episode 73 on Faith Matters. Um, you recorded it with Tim and Aubrey right after we opened back up for COVID. So we were mm-hmm. talking about, you know, people have been away from church and I just, I love this. I, I love these two words that mm. you chose to frame the podcast around belonging and um, boundaries. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just so helpful for me because um, sometimes we just outsource any boundaries to authority and you have mm-hmm. a way of being respectful of church, our leaders, but also, um, having self ownership of our own way forward as a Latter Day Saint that mm-hmm. I thought was re- mm-hmm. 
it's not like you had to sell anything out in our doctrine to do that. I think you just mm. honored our theology. Mm-hmm. So would you yeah. just go for it? <laughs> yeah, well, sure. Well, first of all, I think much like on my mission and much like my decision to get a PhD, we have we have an amazing theology, Rick, and it provides for us this ability to develop ourselves on so many fronts. And yet we tend to hyperfixate on obedience and compliance and conformity. Now, that is not a limitation of our theology, in my view. It's a limitation of us as people because people love conformity. We love reassurance. We love the validation of other people around us. And so we do what groups naturally do. But our theology provides this path into wisdom and deeper capacity to love. It's very much what I see Christ as having taught us. But because it feels scary, we seldom take it. So what I mean by that is that we have general authorities who give general principles. But then we have this other important tool, which is personal revelation and personal witness and personal clarity. And a lot of us just don't really want that. We want to conform. I remember on my mission getting what I knew was my answer of that I had a responsibility to sort out for myself what was true and to align myself with what was true and to let go of the rest. And I did not want that answer because I didn't want the social invalidation of it. I wanted the answer of everything's true don't worry your pretty little head about it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that sounds lame, but I, I wanted the, I wanted the security of being accepted. I wanted the security of somebody else sorting out the answers. And that just wasn't the answer for me. The answer was you have a responsibility to discern, think, and, you know, and to align yourself with what you do know is true. Right. And so I knew that was my moral responsibility, but I was afraid of the invalidation that would come from it. And I think that's true of most human beings. We prefer that, you know, that's why we often go around trying to get other people to think the same way that we do. You know, don't you think that movie was good? I thought it was good. Why didn't you like it? You know, like (laughs) we all have a really hard time sometimes with invalidation with other people not validating our beliefs, our thoughts, our choices. And so what we tend to do is pressure conformity, either by folding ourselves in or pushing others to do the same, rather than the exposure and responsibility of living as truthfully as we can within that pressure cooker of our social relationships. So our faith provides that. Like it's not just, God does not just want automatons. God does not just want us to obey ourselves into oblivion. Okay. God wants us line upon line to grow into godly beings, wise, knowing the difference between good and evil, what is truthful, living truthfully, to grow into a deep capacity to know, right? And the way you do that, like the obedience, you know, to use that frame, these are like the guardrails, they're guides to help us when we don't have our own reasoning in place yet. And we need it. We need to start there. It's a way of internalizing what the social rules are, internalizing what the principles are. And we do it in an immature way at first, because there's no other way. 
Um, and then we start to integrate it more. But ultimately, we must like internalize and inhabit a way of being where we're able to be agents and actors, not just conformist and fear-based um, compliant people. And that is in our theology. Now, we often don't emphasize it. Uh, some of us don't live it enough to know how to emphasize it. But I think that's ultimately our responsibility is between ourselves and God. We are always responsible for our choices, even if we lay them at someone else's feet. Talk about your own story where you um, stepped away from the church for a couple of weeks and then kind of came back with a different framework. Sure. So when I was writing my dissertation, you know, I got pretty upset during that period because I was reading things that general authorities had said about women, about sex, women and sexuality, some of which were just highly problematic messages and messages that women had internalized that had really impacted their lives and their ability to thrive and their ability to have pleasure or desire in their lives. And I would try to bring this up with friends or family and say, I don't, this is not cool. I don't like this. And usually people would get upset with me. Okay. Not, not with <laughs> what the idea was, okay, <laughs> which would get me more upset, you know, because I'm like, I'm not the problem. Okay. Um, because I was again looking for the validation of other people for what I was figuring out. And um, and I think that part of the reason I was upset was because I wanted so much to belong. I wanted to belong to my own thoughts and beliefs, and I wanted to belong to the group that I loved, right? This was partly why I was studying LDS women in the first place, is this was my family, this is my people. And so to feel that if I thought honestly and was trying to figure out what was good, that I was going to be rejected was really distressing for me because I felt like I had, to, I, I would get one or the other. And so I, I think that I went through a period where I felt like I didn't have a choice. Like I had to stay if I was going to have respect from others but it made me feel so controlled because what I wanted was their validation. I wasn't really controlled. I say this to clients a lot. You're not really controlled, but because you need or want their validation so much, it makes you feel controlled. And I understand that. Believe me, I, I know that feeling well. Okay. I think I came to a point where I was like, it makes me too angry, right? It makes me, makes me not even like myself because I, I'm giving away too much power. And so I have to have the right to make a decision I can live with. And so I decided I'm not going to keep going. Like, I don't, I don't think my soul is here. I don't think I can do this. So I started going to the Unitarian Church for several weeks and um, I would go and then I would, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the sermons were good. They were interesting, you know, um, perhaps unlike us, they could often take negative feedback. Like sometimes people would challenge some of the ideas. And, but I remember afterwards, like being at like the equivalent of a linger longer and saying, you know, I was LDS and that I was, and then they would roll their eyes and make some stereotyped, you know, fear-based simplistic idea about Latter-day Saints. And, you know, things like this kept happening where people would just be just as narrow, just as rigid, just as validation seeking. I'm like, look, if I'm going to be with immature people, I'm going to be with my immature people. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And so I'm like, this, 
you know, this isn't my group and it's not like I'm finding a home here either. So the thing that was good about that for me was it became like truly my choice. Like I knew I could stay, I knew I could choose otherwise. I knew I could do that. But now it was like, I don't want otherwise. I want to be there. Um, And there's plenty that I disagree with that I think we need to mature out of, but this is where I want to be. And so that act of agency, right, actually helped tremendously. Like I I didn't feel angry anymore. Like, you know, it's not that I loved everything that would come across the pulpit, but I just didn't take it so personally. I didn't have to make it all be right. It was just my people. And if you care and embrace any people, (laughs) you're going to see limitation everywhere, including in yourself. And so somehow it just because it was an act of choice and self-definition, it shifted how it all felt to me. It also gave me more permission to be myself, actually, because I wasn't trying to get people to see it my way nor conform. It was more like, okay, here I am and I'm not going anywhere, (laughs) like it or not. Okay. So I, I'm here. I'm one of, I'm, you know, I remember somebody telling me that I wasn't really a Mormon and I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not true. Was, I'm not a good Mormon. That's I think what she said. And I'm like, that's just not true. I'm a person who's striving to be good. And I'm a hundred percent Mormon, you know, in this sort of cultural ethnic identity sense. Like I, a lot of times we say you don't belong unless you, all your ideas conform. And mine is a broader view. Like I, this is my people. Okay. This is my group. I've grown up. I have done all, I got my medallion. I mean, I I did everything. I went on a mission, married in the temple. You know, it's like, this is where I belong. It's my people. And so I'm not going to accept the idea that I must pretend to believe the same in order to say I belong. I love your personal story. You've got this academic work and this clinical experience, but you you teach vulnerability, which I think I want to talk about next, just in being confident enough and brave enough to share your own story. I think this is a beautiful part of your story. It was perhaps mm. my one of my favorite parts of the podcast mm. I listened to this morning and and mm. just how you own you own this and and yeah. I love some of the vocabulary years you use. Um, mature out of, and I, I love that, that it's, mm. you're so respectful the way you talk about how our culture and things need to change. It's one of, mm. it makes it palatable, if I think, as you're right. And I think about the Book of Mormon traditions of our fathers when you talk like that, that, yes, you know, we maybe need to mature out of some of the traditions of our fathers. And as we mm-hmm. it work to become a more Zion-like people, and Zion to me isn't sameness and isn't conformity of thought. I've right. always thought about the city of Enoch perhaps being translated in unity is what we know, but they may have been stronger because they embrace this diversity yeah. to be able to lift the hands of the poor. We know that's one of the yes. the hallmarks of the city of Enoch. There was no poor among them. And I think the diversity of thought and bringing all the different talents and seeing that as a good thing. Yes. Allowed them to do more than they could. In Not the a threat. As, yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, um, I think of the body of Christ metaphor is one of my favorites because, you know, it's very clear. You can't say I have no need of thee. I mean, 
you may not like the abscess on the body. <laughs> I, don't mean to, I don't mean to say someone's an abscess, but <laughs> but you know, there, there's, there's things that we may say, I don't like this part. It un- makes me unhappy. It makes me uncomfortable. I want to say that you don't belong or to say that I'm superior because, you know, whatever, because I'm the arm. Um, rather than, no, the body of Christ, we all work together and we all support one another. And there may be aspects of the body that get more attention or acknowledgement like the mouth or the brain. But the thing is, it's we're all connected and we all have need of each other and we bless each other. And, you know, I think when we become Zion-like inside of our own hearts, when we grow into a godly understanding, we really understand and live the idea that we are no better or less than anyone else, that we are all equal in this, not, not equal in talents or situation or anything, because there's, there's great variation in that sense, but, and it's not all fair either, right? Like some people have much more difficulty to manage than others do, but that we are all, um, light. We're all this kind of divine light. We are all connected to one another. We all impact one another. And we, any one of us could have been born into a different situation. And so to have a kind of humble respect for that interconnectedness, for the divinity in each person around you, and to really see it and to not, um, and to relate to people that way, because that's what's truthful about them and you. And you may be in different roles and different challenges or different strengths, but you don't use that to feel better about yourself or worse about yourself. It's part of a, real divine understanding of ourselves is to accept ourselves right in all our limitation and to accept ourselves as we are right organisms in development learning line upon line day after day and that is more than okay it is god's plan and to not berate ourselves for being what god designed us to be you know organisms in development Talk about boundaries. Um, sometimes, I don't know if this is our doctrine or just our culture, that when we were baptized or when we took out our Temple Covenants, we agreed to, ever, to accept every calling that comes our way. And that's, um, and we may mm-hmm. need that validation to accept every calling. And, and mm-hmm. some others would feel like maybe we haven't, maybe each calling we should process slowly and get our own personal revelation. And we haven't covenanted to accept every calling that comes our way. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about however you want to talk about that. I think you'll be helpful for our listeners. Sure. I mean, I think that the covenant, the promise is to contribute to the body, right? To, to make a difference. I think when we say any calling that comes your way, you must say yes to if you're a covenant person, right? I think that's manipulative. I don't think that's true. It's back to that obedience frame that you shouldn't bring your own agency to this. And when people do that, they really suffer because they what they were saying is, okay, I'll sacrifice my agency here, but I really better get some blessings on the other side. Hopefully God will make this problem go away because I'm just going to unquestionably questioningly do something. Um, I don't, I don't think that's how it works because what I believe is that we are always responsible for our choices no matter 
where those opportunities come from, no matter whose feet we lay the responsibility at. We live in the consequences of our choices. So, for example, I was called to be in Young Women's when my children were small, and it was a much more demanding calling than I expected in terms of the actual number of hours. And I had a special needs child that was very, very taxing on my time. And, and I did not feel good about, I loved young women's. I loved the women I was serving with. Actually, it was, it was not about that. I just felt like it was actually betraying kind of my larger purpose at the time to keep doing it at that level. And so I remember talking to the bishop and saying this, I love calling. I love the women. It's not working for the, this other sense of responsibility that I have right now. So we ended up negotiating like a different level of time for me because, but, but my larger point is that I knew that I couldn't say, well, I didn't do what I thought was needed for my children because the Bishop gave me this calling. I mean, that just doesn't fly in my world. I, I, I'm ultimately have to decide where I put my finite resources, time and energy and do I feel that it's right? And so ultimately I have to discern for myself what is right. Now, I don't mean to be clear that it's just like whatever I want, I'm going <laughs> to, I don't mean that at all. Because sometimes we are asked to sacrifice something for the greater good, for the group, sacrifice our time and our resources. And it doesn't feel good. We don't want to, for lack of a better word. But we know in our most honest heart that it's the right thing to do then we should do it, right? So that is to say, when we are invited to do something difficult and in our heart of hearts, we can feel that it's the right thing to do. Well, we owe it to ourselves, to our integrity to do it. It makes us stronger to do what we honestly believe is good and right, even if it's inconvenient, uncomfortable, or stretches us. So I don't mean to like you flippantly turn away things. But you also don't capitulate just to the idea like this is going badly for me, but there's going to be a blessing somewhere. So I'm just going to keep doing it. When someone receives a calling, do you have a general advice to them? Do you encourage them to, to I mean, we're kind of programmed willing and worthy to say yes. Um, do you kind of encourage them, especially if a spouse that's not involved in the decision or to talk to them or in, maybe the spouse should always be invited in the first place. Mm -hmm. And is yeah, it okay I mean, to I had sort a, of, so, somebody, it, yeah, just talk yes. about it. It's okay. came over and he's like, you know, he's, he said, are you, before he told me anything, he said, are you worthy and willing to accept a calling from the Lord? And I said, worthy. Yes. Willing. We'll have to see. <laughs> <laughs> and he kind of laughed, like thinking I was joking, but I was not joking at all. <laughs> I mean, meaning, you have every right to invite me and I have every right to decide how I'll respond. So, I mean, yes, I would definitely, I mean, if it was not a significant thing and it wasn't going to affect my family, I would never be talking, I guess, to my husband about it, but I would want to talk to my husband or have some time to think about, am I really ready to commit this level? Is this something I feel good about? You know, sometimes that's been an immediate yes, because it was clear what the invitation was, was fit for what I could do and other times where I had to think about it. But I think that, um, yeah, I guess I would just say to remember that you have your a right to your own confirmation, to your own clarity, to your own integrity, and to not um, 
to not be flippant about that responsibility. Is it is it the same as like I'm thinking back to my BYU days where sometimes I think men did this more to women. They said, you know, I've received a witness that you know <laughs> you're to marry me, and that that sort of became oh, an umbrella sure. witness for both of them. Oh yeah, and. Gosh. That would be like, where you know what? I just got a clear confirmation that you're not the right person. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think a better framework is obviously for both people to get a witness. And is there a principle apply also to callings? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I definitely think so when it's a high demand calling. Okay. Because I have worked with so many couples where the husband takes on the calling of being the bishop. I've worked with it in the opposite too, where, you know, she was in the stake release society and he is resentful. And, you know, in these cases often they're like, look, God wants me to do this. And so you just have to deal. <laughs> I don't think that's decent, fair, kind. I, I think it's actually using the idea of God to not take responsibility for your choice, for your impact on others, because our primary commitment is to our marriages and to our children. And so we want to serve in the church, but these shouldn't interfere with our our larger commitments. So you have to make sure, I think, especially in something as demanding as a bishop recalling, that you really have two people who are choosing the sacrifice because both are making it. And when somebody unilaterally makes it, it often creates resentments and frustrations And it makes it very difficult for the person even accepting the calling to do it well because they don't have the support um, around the decision. I like that, Jennifer. And I like the idea that everybody gets confirmation, the the person extending the call, the person receiving a call, and the spouse, if it's a high demand call. And then it seems like everybody's on equal ground. Um, Mm -hmm. Receiving confirmation is the right thing to do. And there's that tension sort of and space created in our culture that if, you know, if that joint agreement doesn't exist, that perhaps another path is considered. I love this. The reason I bring this up, listeners, is I don't, I think sometimes we create a feeling in the church where we need to accept every calling or we leave the church because we just can't hit that hurdle. And I mm. want to create a fork in the road that Jennifer's doing is there's another a way forward to be a committed Latter-day Saint, but not agree to accept every calling. And not be full of the anxiety that you may feel where I've already committed to accept everything that comes my way. And the anxiety that causes tension, you're not sure how it's going to navigate that. So I love creating space in Zion for people to do this um, intentional mm-hmm. the way it works for them. Because um, mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of more people staying in. if Because mm-hmm. a lot of people want to stay in but are nervous about some of these. Um, mm-hmm. Talk One of the things you talked about in this podcast that I wrote down in my notes was um, being authentic and how that actually brings the spirit and bringing authentic, being authentic at church. Mm. And sometimes that's really hard to do. And, but we mm. connect and we feel belonging when we're authentic and real mm-hmm. and vulnerable. Talk a little bit about that. And you even talked about how mm-hmm. Christ was very authentic, but it came from a position of love and self-confidence mm-hmm. in who he was. So just anywhere yeah. you want to go on that. Sure. Well, I, I think t- love and tr- yeah, love and truth always go together. So. Sometimes I think, you know, in our church culture, we will ask a question in Sunday school, but our real goal is everybody give the right answer, right? Give the answer that we all want to hear. So the question is, how has reading the scriptures blessed your life? (laughs) Well, it's, it's like framed up to only be confirming of the idea. 
And so what often happens, I think, in our church experience is we feel lonely with each other because like, wow, they all just love reading the scriptures. I don't. What's the matter with me? Why do they love it so much? I, you know, so we, we kind of often in the name of the good, we pretend and we pretend because we're trying to be good or we want others to believe we're good or we think they've got it all worked out. I need to act like I've got it all worked out. <laughs> and so it creates a, a subtle but very real division in people. And it's not loving. It's, it's like the, it's falseness in pursuit of truth. And you can't, you can't do that. You have to live truthfully. Now that said, sometimes people use the truth to assault. Okay. To like destroy, to say, well, I learned this and I know that and, you know, and I get it and you don't. So there's also people that can basically be trying to persuade people in a Sunday school class or wherever else to believe like they do, right? Or to think like they do or to disbelieve like they do. And that's also got its own agenda, right? You know, it's like I was doing some of this when I was working on my dissertation. I'd be like at a party, a word party or something, and I'd be, you know, trying to convince people of my ideas because I wanted them to, I wanted the reassurance of it. So, I mean, I think there was some aggression even in my voice at the time because I was sort of panicked to get people to see what I saw, but it was coming not out of authenticity so much as an agenda and anxiety, right? So that's the other side of it. And you want to be careful with that. I think though that we often use the language of being vulnerable. I think it's more like that, you know, that I'm willing not to say what you should think or what you should believe, but I'm willing to talk honestly about what I think, what I believe, what my experience is, what my understanding of growing in my life has been like what's allowed me to love better what where do i get stuck what is hard you know just like showing up and letting yourself be known as another human being a fellow traveler in pursuit of the good and even though we are all doing this in different ways and some people have different you know experiences and stories around what's been helpful for them than what's been helpful for you that if it's not agenda driven, if it's honest and it's sincere, well, I think it binds people together because you can say, like, I respect your story. Like, it's not my experience, but I respect your experience. And I can see why you think as you think about that issue. You know, a lot of times in our political divisions, we just get so stereotyping of people. Like, they're just whacked. They're crazy over there. They just don't get... And it's just not true. These are like real people with real experiences who've usually come to their ideas for good reasons. And if we would peel away all the stereotypes and the and the scapegoating and learn people's stories, it doesn't mean you would necessarily agree with their conclusions, but you could better understand why they think as they do. And it would help us grow up. It would help us as a as a culture and as a society to get a little wiser. Because when we do these divisive moves, which is very, very human, we really do make ourselves weaker. Yeah, I've really tried to understand vulnerability and um, recognize that when people are vulnerable um, in their stories to me on the podcasts or in their visits with me, I feel a tremendous spirit. Yes, um, exactly. LGBTQ people telling their story. People have had very difficult experiences. But there's something yes. about vulnerability, as you're sharing, that binds us together. And then I want to be more vulnerable. And I, I think sometimes yes. at church, I, I cynically n- named it the best, best answer club sometimes in my own 
circle yes. because I feel like the, there's questions being asked, but those that thrive are the people that have the scholarly answer. And right. they're really good answers, Jennifer. And I learn a lot yeah. from those answers. So I, I don't say we shouldn't always give really thoughtful, insightful answers, but the vul- I'm missing the vulnerability now that I've experienced in other circles. I never yeah. had experienced it before. And now that I've seen how vulnerability brings us together and is a spiritual experience, I miss that sometimes in our correlated I, yeah, I don't want to yeah. be, neither of us are trying to be negative about our church experience. We're just talking about how we can do better and mature out of, to use your language. Mm-hmm. What do you see in the life of Jesus or any of that, just wherever you want to go, but what do you see in the life of Jesus that helps us in his ministry improve and mature out of things, perhaps by looking at mm. the, the life he lived? Mm. I'm just thinking about it from that frame, the life he lived. Or who he was and what he taught. Yeah. Well, I, I think that Christ was very focused on the lower level. When I say lower level, like as we develop morally, we grow line upon line from one frame of reference into broader and more inclusive frames of reference. But we do have to kind of walk that path. When we're in our lower level of development, which we all start in at least. We're much more black and white. These people are good. These people are bad. Babies do this intuitively. The, the babies that like Cheerios, like I like Cheerios, they're they're good. The ones that like <laughs> Fruit Loops, they're bad. I mean, we we just try. We're tribal from the beginning, and so we often use this to create groups and hierarchies and put ourselves above others. And Christ was teaching us against that, and especially not using God and faith to do that, because it looks good but it isn't good. So he was very critical of the Sadducees and the Pharisees who would use their compliance and their practices and so on to say they were better than other people. And Christ kept teaching the idea that isn't good. That isn't goodness. What is good is when we love others and we understand others, the woman taken in adultery. Like this is, he's like demonstrating, go and sin no more. Like Sin hurts, okay? It's, it, it will limit your life. So because I care for you, go and do otherwise because you will be better for it. But it's not a castigation. Is that an English word? I know that's Spanish anyway, but like, like it's it. not a, it's, yeah, it's not a condemnation of, of the person. It's saying, you know, there's a context, there's a reason, and it's maybe limiting her life. But I'm not going to sit her and say she's less than us like people casting stones were doing. And so Christ is being really clear, like who, who among us isn't, is without sin, right? There's, there's no, you know, we're all flawed. We're all sinners. We're all, we're all finding our way. And to use religion or faith to condemn each other, to be divisive, to basically put ourselves above others is an egregious misunderstanding of what faith is and what God is and what love is. So, you know, it's very, I don't say it, these ideas that I'm even saying are so much easier than actually doing it. You know, I, I can stereotype people. I can get judgmental. I mean, I, it's very human to do all those things. But to be clear, like Christ was teaching us, love leads you into truth. Care about others. Know their stories. Know their experiences. Don't relegate them to some category, to some group you can dismiss. 
know who they are as, as other children of God, as human beings who were striving just like you. Had you been born in their experience, you'd probably believe and think and be doing about the same thing. So don't condemn them without knowing them, know them, and it will inform you about God. Um, I remember when I was a, in my first year at um, Boston College, and honestly, I was trying so hard to make the church fit for me that you know, I had a supervisor who was a lesbian woman and I had a coworker who was a, um, a gay, uh, college student. He was, um, he was Catholic and he was a, um, undergrad at Boston college and they were both like amazing people. Okay. Now, now this for me was inconvenient because <laughs> I feel embarrassed to say what I'm going to say, but I was trying to figure out, even though they were good people, how were they making the wrong choice? Because I was trying to make my ideology win. And this was just another kind of moment for me where I was like, no, no, know and care about these people. And God will show me what I need to know. Don't, don't prejudge them. Don't make them fit into a stereotype. Know and love these other children of God. And I can trust that what is true will come through. And that for me, I think is a central Christian message is that you love, love leads you to know God. Love leads you to know truth. It's not ideology. It's how we are with one another. Love leads you to know truth. Love leads you to know God. Um, We're kind of at the end. Tell any last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners. Gosh, well... I think if there's anything I'd say, just I know that this is a younger audience, generally speaking, but I just appreciate and respect the earnestness um, to to sort out what's true and good and worth holding on to in the church and how to make our community stronger and better and to make us, to, to do our part, all of us, to become a more Zion-like people um, that isn't measured by sometimes the ways that we tend to try to measure each other, but by how deeply we care for one another and live up to the best in ourselves and in our theology. That's great. Listeners, I think we both invite you to act on any impressions you felt. Don't get overwhelmed with too many and make a huge to-do list, but Act on the couple of impressions you felt and hope you feel more peace in your own life and your own journey, more clarity in your future, and more um, insights on how to better love and support others. Um, Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife, thank you so much. You personally benefited me. I wish I'd connect with your work uh, much thank earlier. You. It would have helped me, but I'm grateful for your important voice. You're, I don't know if this is a good label for you, but you're very non binary. And I think that's a mature. I don't know if you like that label, but I've used, and I've just learned in my own journey to live with paradoxes and live with the complexities of that. And you do such a graceful job of doing that as you share your own story and you allow people to also live in, in, in this beautiful, Mm. complex world Mm. we live in and Mm. create so much grace for others. It's to me a way forward to reduce divisiveness and bring us together both in our faith community and in, in the world and help heal our divide. So, mm-hmm. um, Dr. Finlayson, Finlayson Fife and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, we ask that you please rate, review, and share the podcast so that more people can find and benefit from Dr. Jennifer's work. 